Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says Everybody. It's Alice here. I want to tell you a little bit about what happened at my house over the weekend and then relate that back to a sequence of poems by Sylvia Plath, uh, her B poems, which um, poems that I've wanted to talk about on here for quite a while. But what happened at our place over the weekend, I took as a sign that it was time to talk about the B poems with you. So we keep a hive of bees out in our uh, backyards. We have uh, two and a half boxes. And we were noticing over the weekend that um, they were starting to spend a lot of time outside the hive, kind of sitting in a big clump, which is a sure sign that the hive is really, really full. And pretty soon the queen is gonna leave, uh, the old queen is gonna leave and take half the hive with her, effectively splitting the hive in half and creating a new colony somewhere. So uh, when you keep bees, you have to keep an eye out for this process if you want to expand your hive because your job is to find that clump of bees around the queen wherever they land and somehow get them off the branch or whatever it is they've settled on and into a new box so that you can put that somewhere and, and start a new section of the hive or a whole new, new colony actually with a new queen. So my partner does all the heavy lifting when it comes to beekeeping at our place. And uh, we were sitting at home on, actually I think it was Friday afternoon and we started to hear the really distinctive, really intense buzzing sound out in the backyard. And sure enough, we went to look outside and there was just a black cloud of bees just swarming everywhere all over the backyard. And gradually they started to settle along a branch and it was the biggest swarm, the biggest clump of bees we had ever seen. Usually they're about, I don't know, 30 centimeters long and they just kind of hang off a branch. This took up the entire length of a branch. It was crazy and really, really scary. Um, and yeah, Tom was quite panicked about how he was going to deal with it. So ran down, got a new box from uh, a shop just down the road, which thankfully had one. And yeah, after quite a bit of planning and strategizing and uh, screwing up his courage, managed to shake the majority of the bees into the new box. And thankfully the queen went in. You never know whether the queen's gonna go in or not. Um, but if she goes in, the rest of the bees will follow her. And so by morning we had a new colony in a new box. So yeah, quite the afternoon, three hours of uh, back and forth and three or four bee stings later for Tom. Uh, yeah, I'll put a photo up of the, of the, um, the clump of bees if you're interested. So keeping bees is, it's really satisfying. Obviously you get honey, but keeping them, you also really get the sense of the colony as one thing. If you've ever stepped on a bee and felt bad that you killed it by ripping out the sting, you don't really have to because it's kind of just like a cell. Um, the whole colony is like one animal, really. Yeah, and bees have fascinated poets for a long, long time. I'm sure there are examples stretching far back into history, but the example that I wanted to share with you today specifically is from Sylvia Plath. So I'm sure anyone listening who has outed themselves 
as a poet to someone who isn't all that familiar with poetry understands the weight of Platt's legacy on what it is that we do. Her poems, specifically Daddy and Lady Lazarus, and also the way that she died, I think weigh on us. And I think these are things that we tend to have to contend with because particularly as a poet who happens to be a woman, the shadow of Plath kind of falls on you sometimes. And I think people make assumptions about what you're like as a person. You must be uh, a dramatic person, a melancholy person, prone to bouts of depression maybe. Her shadow is just so long and there are so many poets who who deal with her in their work and, and continue to have to deal with her. Many poets really hate Plath. Many, many poets also love her. I did a really great interview with Stuart Barnes, uh, episode 11 that was looking, taking a deep dive into her poem, Ariel. And yeah, Stuart really makes the case for that poem as a perfect poem. Personally, I don't have any special love for Sylvia Plath, but I definitely don't hate her either. Daddy, Lady Lazarus, they're not special poems to me, but I do love her bee poems for a couple of reasons. One, just as somebody who keeps bees, I love that that process is documented in poetry. And two, these are the poems that Sylvia Plath actually thought were going to make her name. She thought her reputation was going to rest on these poems. She wrote five bee poems but they're not really remembered. Again, because of the way she died, that casts a shadow over her work, and then, yeah, she's remembered in a very different way. But uh, I want to quote to you here from uh, a piece that I came across through, once again, Modern and Contemporary American Poetry. There's a, a few paragraphs here from a writer called Karen Ford talking about the bee poems and about how Plath saw them. So Karen Ford writes... Plath was finally sure of her genius in mid-October 1962, just after completing the B sequence, when she wrote to her mother that she was ready to start a new life. Quote, I am a writer. I am a genius of a writer. I have it in me. I am writing the best poems of my life. They will make my name. Though the poems that would ultimately make her name came a few days later, Daddy, Ariel and Lady Lazarus, among others, She obviously felt that the bee poems were ones on which she could build her poetic reputation. Plath wrote the five bee poems, which she initially titled Bees, and conceived of as a sequence in less than a week in October 1962, as her marriage was breaking up. They are unified by their subject matter, bees and beekeeping, and by their five-line stanza pattern, though each poem works its own unique variation of the genre, theme, and form. The fact that the B sequence contradicts our received notion of Plath's poetry accounts for its failure to make her name. As every modern poetry anthology attests, her reputation rests on her most excessive poems, Daddy, Ariel, and Lady Lazarus. It is an interesting paradox that the most frequent charge leveled against her work, that it envisions only violence and self-destruction, remains untroubled by the final ease and hopefulness of the B sequence. Critics bemoan Plath's single-mindedness, but limit their reading to the poems that confirm it. So I want to read you one of these B poems, and I'm going to read all five, obviously, um, just to give you an idea of what they're like. 
And yeah, I think it's fascinating that context as well. She wrote them in a week. Uh, she's her marriage is breaking up. She's 30 years old when she writes these and she is five months off her suicide. So this one is called The Arrival of the Bee Box. I read this to Tom just before he went out to deal with the bee swarm. <laughs> I don't know if it helped or not. The Arrival of the Bee Box. I ordered this, this clean wood box, square as a chair and almost too heavy to lift. I would say it was the coffin of a midget or a square baby, were there not such a din in it. The box is locked. It is dangerous. I have to live with it overnight and I can't keep away from it. There are no windows, so I can't see what is in there. There is only a little grid, no exit. I put my eye to the grid. It is dark, dark, with the swarmy feeling of African hands, minute and shrunk for export black on black, angrily clambering. How can I let them out? It is the noise that appalls me most of all, the unintelligible syllables. It is like a Roman mob, small, taken one by one, but my God, together. I lay my ear to furious Latin. I am not Caesar. I have simply ordered a box of maniacs. They can be sent back. They can die. I need feed them nothing. I am the owner. I wonder how hungry they are. I wonder if they would forget me, if I had just undid the locks and stood back and turned into a tree. There is the laburnum, its blonde colonnades, and the petticoats of the cherry. They might ignore me immediately in my moon suit and funeral veil. I am no source of honey. So why should they turn on me? Tomorrow I will be sweet God. I will set them free. The box is only temporary. Uh, worth noting the highly questionable <laughs> third stanza there with the swarmy feeling of African hands. Um, and also to mention that it is seven five-line stanzas and then that line, the box is only temporary, sits on its own at the very end. I really have no sense of what Plath is getting at here. She seems to be positioning herself as, as the god of the bees. I am the owner. I, tomorrow I will be sweet god. You know, she, she has all the power over this bee box that she's ordered that's apparently sitting inside her house. But then the last line, the box is only temporary, really mystifies me. I don't, I don't really know what she means by that. Because obviously it's some kind of extended metaphor, right? Like, it has to be. But I don't really know. It's making me think back to the start when she's talking about, I would say it was the coffin of a midget or a square baby. Some more super questionable language there. <laughs> yeah, thinking about the box as temporary, like, like a coffin, but then maybe life as temporary. I don't know. If she wrote these in five days, I'm kind of thinking of that as a sort of manic state as well. Um, they're not short poems and they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty complex, obviously. But yeah, as you can tell, this one kind of leaves me uh, not cold, but definitely mystified. So that's one of Platt's B poems. I wanted to mention to the work of Diane Wachowski who was one of Plath's contemporaries and probably 
Um, the best example I can find of somebody who really had to deal with Plath uh, in a very direct way. I mean, maybe had to is putting it too strongly, but she wrote this sequence in a book called Greed, um, which came out in 1973. Um, I picked this up at a secondhand bookshop down the road, and the first time I read it, I thought it was just the worst collection of poetry I had ever, ever picked up. Um, it took me a little while to realize that a lot of the time she's joking. But in this poem, um, it's a very long poem. It's called The Water Element Song for Sylvia. Um, and the epigraph is, For Sylvia Plath, a beautiful poet, and my friends, Kathy Saltonstall, J.J. Wilson, and the Martins. So yeah, it's super long. Um, I'm going to read you uh, about a page and a half, I think. Um, just so you can hear Diane Wachowski talking directly to Sylvia Plath and yet grappling with that legacy in a really immediate way. So I guess published in 73, don't know when the poem was written, but yeah, published 10 years after Plath's suicide. Sylvia, whose life was like mine, with its baby hands asking for love and being slapped by fathers, mechanics and woodsmen, whose fatigue is from trying to hold a house of bricks with no mortar together, as love and being loved can hold our lives together, strong and sound in any weather. Sylvia, I won't, won't, won't go the way you did. I won't die for love, poetry, truth, or a man who betrays me. My grandparents were potato farmers, and I have a bit of a simple potato in me. I have been a tree in winter, and I did not scream when the birds flew out of my hair. Living from day to day is a humiliating effort, and for those of us whose dignity is like shoes to wear on a long walk, the bare bleeding feet of our failures can give infection, gangrene, loss. How can we recognize our failures and not feel sorry for ourselves? And what feeling is less imbued with dignity than self-pity? Sylvia, you would not fall into that weeping well of abandoned women, so you floated away down some other river but I won't go with you. You, ring-necked loon, beautiful thin-noted flute, cup of Lipo's wine, girl with butterflies tattooed on your palm. Your purity, which is a kind of poetry, is not real, not human. And if my life and the pains I have taken with it are to mean anything, I want them to speak for love, for strength, for surviving pain, and using the knowledge of it to be compassionate to others. And she goes on, <laughs> I really, really don't like this poem um, for a number of reasons. It feels very first drafty, uh, stream of consciousness. And yeah, I just don't, I don't, I mean, yeah, what she's saying is, yeah, I'm depressed too, but I'm not going to kill myself like you did. Um, I just don't think that's a very nice thing to say, even if you do say it in a poem. But yeah, Wachowski had to grapple with Plath and again, as a female poet, as, as all poets probably do at some point, just because of the, the weight of her legacy. There's even a reference to Plath in Terence Hayes' book um, that's just come out this year called American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. 
honestly one of the best books you could buy this year if you're going to just buy one poetry book find yourself a copy of Terence Hayes book it's it's so so good um and yet one of them they're all called American Sonnet for my past and future assassin and one of them has these lines my hunch is that Sylvia Plath was not especially fun company a drama queen thin-skinned and skittery she thought her poems were ordinary what do you call a visionary who does not recognize her vision sort of contradicting uh, what Karen Ford was saying about uh, Plath thinking that the B poems were going to make her name and saying, I am a genius of a writer, I have it in me, I am writing the best poems of my life. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if she thought her poems were ordinary, but yeah, I just, I think it's fascinating the way that she just echoes forever. I'm not going to let Terence Hayes have the last word though. I'm going to give it to uh, Luke Davies because I've been chatting with my friend uh, Louise Carter about bees in poetry and how they also echo a lot. I think poets are fascinated by bees for their really, you know, their, their strange uh, multifaceted symbolism that they have. And yeah, we chatted a couple of months back about Luke Davies' books, Totem and Interfere on Psalms, Totem being uh, this long, sumptuous love poem and interfere on Psalms being the kind of shadow side of that love poem where everything's gone wrong and dry. And uh, yeah, there's a really interesting contrast of bees in these two poems. So in Totem poem, you have this stanza. In the yellow time of pollen, when the air was weighed down, there were bees plump with syrup. There were figs fit to burst at the seams. I understood how language had emerged in the flesh of the fruit. I spoke my tongues against your breathlessness. So you got beautiful plump bees there feasting on some syrup. And then we get to interfere on Psalms, page 14. All bees the one bee, I had once thought. My grandiose period. Now I saw the dead bees, sated on all that chlorine in the swimming pool. It was each individual bee death that struck me, every circumstance in its time and place. I had become atomized rather than compartmentalized. It was a matter of viewing. 